We uh, go ahead and open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. Um, I want to pick up where we left off last week. It'll take us a little bit of time to get here. We won't exegete this passage in any great detail, but we will certainly look at it. Colossians chapter 2, if you'll stand with me in reverence of God's word, and we'll, we'll read starting in verse 9. Go down to verse 15. Paul writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. It's a great verse, by the way. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and, and put them to open shame by triumphing, excuse me, over them in him. Let's go, Lord, excuse me, in prayer. Our Father, as always, when we gather, I ask for the same thing, and we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds, our eyes, our ears, our hands, and our feet, that we will be uh, having believed your word, be transformed by your word, and follow the word. May we be found faithful to it. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. Be seated. Um, throughout history, perhaps some of the uh, more um, notable moments of history is when there is a clear rise of evil, and in, in, in some often in a political, military, maybe even economic sense. And the response to that is a call to address the evil, that good men and women cannot simply stand idle by. There must be resistance. Can I give you just two examples, one from a previous generation and one from mine? The first comes from June 4th, 1940, by Sir Winston Churchill, the, the newly minted prime minister of Great, Great Britain, who uh, had warned of the rise of Hitler's Nazism. Uh, this is one of his most famous uh, speeches. Quote, even though large tracts of Europe and many old and famous states have fallen or may fall into the grip of the Gestapo and all the odious apparatus of Nazi rule, we shall not flag or fail. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and the oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And even if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island or a large part of it, were subjected and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until, in God's good time, the new world with all of its power and might steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the ode. It's a classic speech from Winston Churchill. You cannot read anything or watch anything in church here without that speech. We will fight and we will fight and we will fight until there is not air in our lungs. The one from my generation that always comes to mind for me, probably because I was in high school, Three days after 9-11, the President of the United States, we were just talking about George W. Bush, went to Ground Zero. You may remember the scene. I remember watching it live. And he has a bullhorn, and, and he, he, he's, he's got sort of a prepared speech, sort of memorized, right, that America stands on bended knee or something like that. And, and it's, it's not going too well because no one can hear him. And one of the workers shouts, we can't hear you. 
You remember the iconic scene? He's got his arm around one of the workers up there in front of the whole watching world. You remember what he says? But I can hear you. The whole world hears you. And the people who knock down these buildings will hear all of us soon. That's a good speech. And that was W giving that speech. Uh, You just love that. You hear that. You're like, yeah, we must go fight evil. Well, we talked about last week the reality of evil. And you may recall the significance of that is is that although it, it seems obvious to us with a Christian worldview, most people will try to mitigate evil, ignore evil, or blame evil on it's outside of us, right? The externalization of evil. Uh, evil's been done to me, uh, but, but what, what we see in Christianity is, is, is we take evil at face value. Evil is real. It does exist. And, and we've talked about that it is both external, so you do have systems of oppression, if we could use that language. You, you, you do have external evil like the devil, right? And that is reality, but you cannot mitigate internal evil. After all, how can you have systems of oppression without the people in the system oppressing and using the system to oppress? We never want to talk about that. The problem is not rich or poor, east or west coast, rural or urban, black or white, male or female, Republican, Democrat. The problem is the human heart. There's an internal evil that we must address. Well, if, if evil is a reality, then, then what sort of story is it if that's where the story ends? There must be resistance to evil. And that is where we, we, we see biblically our, our theology of the evil must address our rescue from evil. Right? There must be a resistance to it. There must be a call to say that, that knowing who our enemy is, we must fight Well, as we said last time, indifference is not an answer to evil. By ignoring evil's reality, virtually every worldview and religion and philosophy is guilty of indifference. If evil is an illusion, then you don't need to overcome it, but simply forget about it, right? And then that is a problem. If you relativize it, you can write it off as something less significant. Um, Or you just need to try to understand it. Well, of course, they did this atrocious things, but let's pause and think about the historical context of that historical thing. Well, Christianity doesn't just offer insight into what evil is. It shows us how it can be defeated. If sin lies at the root of evil, then what we need is a Savior. We must have a Savior. If sin and evil are both external and internal, what we need is not just any generic Savior. We need one who comes from the outside, thus not stained from it, but then he comes inside to address it for where it is. Most worldviews, you have a distant God who shouts commands at you, be a good person. But how can you be a good person when your heart is blackened by sin? Now, what we need is one who comes from the outside and alien righteousness, use a theological term, who then comes to be on the inside, one who is outside of the system, but enters into the story and succumbs to it. He suffers under it. He becomes a sympathetic savior, if you will, a high priest among us. Well, I'm sure you already know this. No one fits the bill better than Jesus, obviously. And that is exactly what it is we get in the biblical story. The Bible tells us we have three primary enemies. We've looked at these before, so we won't belabor the point. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And all three of these are sources of evil, either externally or internally, or in the case of humanity, both. 
We can both be, uh, have internal evil. We can be the cause of external evil. Uh, if you want to see this biblically, we won't spend a lot of time on this. Ephesians 2 is a great place. Of course, Ephesians 2, 1 to 10 lays out the gospel. Sin, salvation, sanctification, right? This, this, this is, Ephesians 2, 1 to 10 is, is one of the best uh, simple uh, statements of what salvation is. And these first three verses, you, you, you get the statement of the problem. The problem is sin, sin and evil. So first of all, we get, uh, can you see, oh yeah, it's green. It's not so green back there. Um, or at least my eyes aren't all that good. Um, you see here the world uh, following the course of this world, right? Uh, you were dead in your trespasses following after the world. Then there is the flesh. Uh, we all once lived um, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out desires of our body and of the mind. And finally, we get reference to the demonic, following the prince of the power of the air. It's clearly a language re referencing a supernatural being we call the devil. Understanding this is important. It's because if we don't know who we're fighting, if we don't know what the problem is, then all we can do is misdiagnose the problem and as a result, uh, fail to find the cure. Did you know this? That misdiagnoses seriously harm nearly 800,000 people every year. This number comes from a study in July of 2023. Quote, an estimated 795,000 people in the U.S. die or are permanently disabled each year due to misdiagnoses. Stroke topped a list of misdiagnosed medical problems that result in serious harm. About three in four of all misdiagnosed happens to people experiencing the so-called big three, heart problems like heart attack, infections, or cancer. Specifically, in addition to stroke, the most common ailment that results in death or disability due to misdiagnosis are sepsis, pneumonia, blood clots in veins, and lung cancer. On average, the researchers estimated 11% of medical problems result in a misdiagnosis, although the error rate varies widely based on the disease. 800,000 people. Uh, willing to bet whether we know it or not, we know people, maybe even victims of such a misdiagnosis. That is true when it comes to evil. If we misdiagnosed evil, you can never get the cure. And so until we see it as the world, the flesh, and the devil, and that we need a Savior who addresses all three, not just part of one, not just two, but all three, we will never find a solution. We will never defeat the enemy. I think Max Ocato is actually helpful here. There's a great line that he has. If our greatest need had been information, God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. But since our greatest need is salvation, God sent to us a savior. You understand that what you need is to be saved from yourself, dear sinner. To be saved from this wicked world, dear citizen. To be saved from the devil, dear image bearer of God. We need a savior, one who has faced the devil, the one who has conquered death, and the one who, is, uh, who cleanses us of all sins. And we get that only in Jesus. And so we get in the New Testament the language of conquering, overcoming, victory, fighting, a good example of this comes in John chapter 16 on the eve of his own death. Now that, that context is important. Jesus is about to die, and while talking about dying, he is talking about victory. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It's like 
bragging about the recession coming, how rich you're going to get, right? I mean, that doesn't make no sense. That's exactly what Jesus does in John chapter 16, verse 33. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Of course, what's coming? Chaos, violence, injustice, oppression. In the world, there's that word there, right? Your three enemies. In the world, you will have tribulation. Notice there, Jesus doesn't say, because of me, your life will be easy. It's because of me, you will suffer. But don't worry about the suffering. You'll, be, you'll have peace. A peace not defined by your circumstances. But here's the good news. Take heart. I have overcome the source of the conflict, the world. You see, this is the language of, yes, a Savior laying his life down, but it's a Savior who is conquering. He conquers the world by bringing in a better kingdom. Now, if, if we had time, we could really see this in Revelation. Let, let me just highlight a few parts of Revelation for you. Revelation chapter 5, one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered. Note the language past tense. So often we read Revelation thinking Jesus is going to come, he's going to do all this, and that's true. But, but, but you also need to see it is in the context of John, Christ has already won the victory. And in, in Revelation, in fact, we looked at it several times, my favorite chapter of the Bible. Here we see Jesus as the lion. And like the next verse, he's portrayed as the lamb. A lion conquers. A lamb is sacrificed. So you see that John's argument here in, in this apocalyptic vision is that Jesus conquers not with a military, not through political power, but through the cross. It is by the means of the blood of Jesus that Jesus overcomes the world. We can move forward to Revelation 12. They, and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. It's very explicit there, isn't it? And by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives, even unto death. These are the martyrs who are under the altar, right? And, and, and Christ clothes them with blood-stained robes. The point is, is that, that their, their passion for the cross was the, was the cause of their death. It was the means of their victory. Not just their victory being in, in, in heaven with Christ, but the victory of the church. This is how we view suffering. It's, it's how we view uh, the war we're engaged in. This is why Christians must be careful when it comes we put all of our eggs into a political party or an individual. We have abandoned the, the resource of victory. It makes no sense. If you want to change the world, save a soul. Finally, Revelation 17, they will make war on the Lamb. Now, again, it's a beautiful apocalyptic language. You skipped that part, didn't you? Making war on the Lamb. I don't want to brag, but I think I'd win one. All by myself. I am not a buff dude. You've noticed. And the older I get, the more my wife cooks. I'm growing not in muscles, but, but in, in uh, a dad bod, I guess you can say. But I'm pretty confident I could take on a lamb. It's not impressive to declare war on a lamb, except that this war, uh, which is a spiritual earthly war if you read Revelation, is it's going after the means by which the enemy is losing. So it makes war with the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. So you see the past tense in chapter 5, the future tense in chapter 17. He is the Lord of lords, kings of kings, and those who are called and chosen and faithful. Again, it's the same message. Christ rules and reigns by the means of the cross. Well, this is really the amazing part of the story of Jesus, isn't it? He overcomes evil by succumbing to it. No other religion can claim that. 
In Buddhism, you overcome evil by isolating yourself from it, escaping it. You go in your basement, cross your legs, and hum. In Islam, how did, how, how did Muhammad win? With an army. A lot of people will convert to your religion with a gun to their heads. This is, this is true of every religion you have, essentially. Every single one of them. It'll often come by force. And Christianity has been guilty of that, frankly. Jesus overcomes evil by succumbing to it. This is why we have, we have celebrated martyrs. We are working on a special service. We've done this in the past for the uh, International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. There are more people dying because of the Christian faith today than ever in history. We don't think of it much because we're safe here in America for now. Um, we, we have a certain speaker we want that's taken some work, but um, we celebrate the sacrifice of martyrs. For one, because they have given to the church what Christ has given to the church. And there's, there's something honorable about that. You're the church feel honored that God would see them worthy to die for the gospel. That's a world we Americans just can't even imagine. Let's move on. Colossians chapter 2. Let's look at this a little bit. Notice some of the things that Paul says here. I don't want to spend forever on this. Verse 9, Paul clearly lays out that Jesus is divine. He is our God. Uh, in Him, uh, of course, this mirrors Ephesians 1 language, the in Him, uh, of Him, for Him, through Him language. In Him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Now, if you can make sense of that, you're a better theologian than any theologian has ever lived. It's clear at the surface level he's saying Jesus is divine. Tis mystery all, right? The, the immortal dies, right? It's the old Christmas hymn. Here, here, here's a great mystery. How, how full deity can be embodied in a human being. I don't understand that anymore than you do. You think about it too much, you've heard me say, you'll find yourself under your bed in a fetal position, sucking your thumb, reciting the Greek alphabet backwards. All right? But there's something beautiful about it too. The one who is from the outside uh, 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 puts on flesh and walks among us. He, he doesn't stand out here and talk about suffering. He enters into the story. So in him, the fullness of deity dwells. Not only that, notice that Jesus is not only uh, God, he is the head of all things. You have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So, so, so in Christ, you have not only the divine son of God who is the incarnated son of God, you have he who is the head of all creation, which means that if you take the head off of everything, the body crumbles, right? So, so in society, and what we were, something we were gonna talk about this morning, um, in society, when you deny Christ or think you can build society without him, you are choosing chaos over Christ. It is a binary decision. If you have Christ, you have order, peace, and everything that comes with it, the kingdom of God. If you reject Christ, you are severing the head from everything that functions in civilized society. So he is the head of all things. And in him, all rule and authority are given to him. But in verses 11 to 13, we're seeing not only is he the vine, not only is he the head, he's our redeemer. How does Christ redeem us? Well, this is given to us. First of all, uh, Paul tells us he redeems us by forgiveness of our sins, verses 13 and uh, 14. Uh, he says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the circumcision of your flesh, you, you see the language of flesh there, 
God made alive together with him, having forgiveness of all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So you see what the problem is. It's the flesh. And how do you resolve the flesh? It comes by means of forgiveness. The one who is wounded has the right of judgment is the one who instead extends forgiveness. That's why forgiveness is always radical. It's why no one wants to practice it. No one wants to practice it. But that God does that for us, not because we're worthy of it, but because he is our good redeemer. Note the language there. He describes sin as a certificate of debt. Now, what you have here is, uh, in the Roman world is describing a handwritten document specifically for a certificate of indebtedness, which stood as a perpetual written document against us. So, so sin is debt. We, we've talked about this before. And, and because it is deep debt, it is a type of slavery to the debts. You remember the, the parable Jesus tells of the man who owes the king, I don't know, $100 trillion? It's basically the same amount as the national debt. And he realizes, I can never pay this back. And he goes to the king and says, I'll work, I'll work, I'll work, I'll pay it off. And the king says, no, you won't. I'll tell you what. An, you know, an incredible amount of grace I've forgiven you all of it. Only the person that is owed has the power to free the person in debt. Right? You get this. Someone owes you 20 bucks. Guess who has all the power, right? It's because you can decide whether to take them a court or not. Hopefully not over 20 bucks. I'll cover the 20 bucks if you're going to go that far. But, but right, we understand that the one who is owed has the rights of judgments. And the king... Forgives him. Then you remember what happens after that. The guy turns around, someone owes him 20 bucks, and he puts him in debtor's prison. And Jesus says, that, no, that's not how the people in the kingdom of God work. Well, that's the idea here. In fact, he, he says that it's canceled out, right? No doubt you and I, we have bills we have to pay. We have debts that we owe, a mortgage or credit card debt, don't tell Dave Ramsey, or whatever it might be, uh, a student loans, a car debt, or a personal loan, whatever it is. We have that. And until that is paid, you, you are subject to it. You're subject to it. Well, here it is canceled out. In fact, it is, it is erased, if you will. In the ancient world, uh, 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 paper was expensive, right? We, we can, that's why much of the New Testament are short letters. Paper was expensive. So Paul's letters are quite, quite short. Actually, some are very short. Well, in the ancient world, they, they would use some documents to where the it was made in such a way the ink wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't stain, it wouldn't go into the paper. And that would allow uh, people to simply erase what was there and write something new. I guess the example we would have here is dry erase boards. I grew up with chalkboards. When do we decide chalkboards weren't good enough? I think it's the Crayola company because they weren't making enough money on chalk. So, so they had to get markers that didn't last very long, so you would keep buying them. That's my conspiracy, and I'm sticking with it. Right? I mean, I, I teach homeschoolers still, and, and, and yeah. you have to have 40 markers on you so that one of them will work that day. You know I'm right. But you see, you can write up here, you owe everything, and then in an instant, wipe it off clean, and you're good to go. There is no, no, there's no document saying you are in debt. That is what he says. In fact, he says he takes the document there at the end of verse 14 and he nails it to the cross. Now, what is nailed to the cross? Yes, the Savior, but the sign of judgments. This is Jesus uh, of Nazareth, king of the Jews. 
Paul has in mind here, your debt is now nailed upon the cross so that when Jesus dies, he is paying your debt. His death is the payment of, of, of your sin. That's why sin is so serious and it must be addressed seriously. And it also means having my debt being paid, I'm free from the debts. If I don't own the bank anything, I'm not going to pay the bank anything. So too, if Christ has forgiven our debt, why do we walk around with a sense that we owe we, we have to pay for our sins. It's already been paid for. So that's forgiveness. So the first thing that Jesus does for us is, as, as, the, as our divine head and redeemer is he forgives our debts. Notice secondly, verse 15, he disarms the devil. Again, verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Paul uses three strong verbs to describe what Jesus did on the cross. The first word is the word disarmed. It literally is stripped. In fact, your, your translation may say something like that. that. That at the cross and the resurrection, Jesus stripped, he disarmed the devil. Um, and of course, you can see the idea here. It is to remove any and all weapons the enemy may have. I, we still do this today, right? If, 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 if you... If a, if, forgive me, the, the, the stuttering... If you get pulled over and a police officer asks you to get out, what's the first thing he's going to do to you? Check for anything that may harm him. You will be disarmed. In this sense, you will be stripped. Which means you can do no harm now. That's why you put in handcuffs. At the cross, the moment where the devil thought he was most powerful, he was actually disarmed. I mean, that, that's this incredible story. Now, what are these weapons? Things like accusation, lies, temptations, fear. The list can go on and on. We've talked about a number of them before. Secondly, notice that at the cross, Jesus made a public display of the devil. Not only has God stripped and disarmed the enemy, but he has made, put him on expedition for everyone to see. This, is, this has long been used in ancient warfare. For example, following the capture of the defeat of Benito Mussolini, his carcass was hung in, in Milan upside down, displaying his defeat and weakness. That is the image Paul has in mind here. At the cross, we have Jesus' enemies claiming the king was weak and powerless. And yet Paul proclaims here, it is at the cross, the opposite is true. It isn't that Christ has been exposed, it's that his enemies are being exposed. I love what John Stott does here. Quote, look at Christ there spread eagled and skewered on his cross, robbed of all freedom of movement, strung up with nails or ropes or both, pinned there and powerless. It appears to be total defeat. If there is victory, it is victory of pride, prejudice, jealousy, hatred, cowardice, and brutality. Yet the Christian claimed that the reality is the opposite of the appearance. What looks like, and indeed was, the defeat of goodness by evil is also, and more certainly, the defeat of evil by goodness. Overcome there, he was himself overcoming. Crushed by the ruthless power of Rome, he was himself crushing the serpent's head. The victim was the victor. The cross is still the throne for which he rules the world, which is why we should be a little bothered when we turn the cross into an aesthetic. It means more than something that is pretty. It is a declaration of victory. Victory, particularly against those who think history is on their side. Incredible claim. Here's the third verb, triumph there in verse 15. 
triumphing over them in him. The picture here is of a traditional parade common for Roman generals. I mentioned last week that when Titus conquered Jerusalem, he took some of the prominent people of Israel, and they were paraded through the Roman streets, Titus in the front his white stallion, everyone cheering, and in the back, this is what the Romans would do, in the back was the head of the defeated enemy, um, and the king or general, whatever. They would be stripped, they would be tied to, to some animal, and they would be paraded through the streets, and people would laugh, and they would mock, and everything else. And, and Paul is saying that is exactly what Christ has done through the cross. Incredible imagery that we have here. And because Christ has triumphed over evil, you and I are to be liberated from it. Sinners are made saints. The dead are raised. The enslaved are liberated. The wretched are made holy. Salvation conquers, it heals, it transforms, it saves. What a picture we have in Christ. When we misdiagnose evil, we will never come to this beautiful cure. So Christ has overcome evil, which means we must turn to the Savior, be cleansed as sinners, and transform a community, which is what we'll look at more really next week. Well, I mentioned 9-11 earlier. I'm going to take you back to 2003. I was a senior in high school. I graduated in May of 2003, 20 years ago. And I remember when we went to Iraq, being that I just turned 18, I was a little nervous about it. I'm not going to lie. Although I, t- I just tell my son, this is free. Uh, he just did the ACT and the PSAT. And I told him I had to do the military test thing. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. I proved not to be the candidate they were looking for. Like all my buddies, you know, all the mechanic stuff and all that sort of stuff, it's great. Um, they would just give me a gun and say, good luck, I guess, if I got drafted, right? I had no special skills they wanted. Anyways, 2003... Uh, we went into Iraq, and one of the people we were looking for was, of course, Saddam Hussein. You remember the day that he was captured? I do. 2003, American diplomat Paul Bremer stepped to a microphone and announced to the world that he had been captured. You remember his words? I still remember them. Gets up the microphone, he says, ladies and gentlemen, we got him. We got him. I remember even the media there were celebrating Oh, country celebrating. Well, the resurrection of Christ is a similar announcement to the evil of this world. You can be free from sin. The head of the serpent has been crushed. We no longer need to fear death. Ladies and gentlemen, we got it. Christ now rules and reigns, and he redeems. Yes, evil is reality. That's not where Christianity ends. It ends with the hope of a cross, a crucified Savior, risen from the dead, who begs all to come to him, a true and better kingdom who overcomes evil through goodness, not through power. That's a far better story. Well, let us go to the Lord in prayer and we'll, we'll be dismissed.